Uh, we are going to jump back into our study, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, and again, uh, I will try to uh, work through this quickly. A few weeks ago, we considered Paul's reflection in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul gives thanksgiving to God for the way the Thessalonian believers came to faith in Jesus Christ, their salvation, their uh, evangelism. It was obvious to Paul, after reflecting upon the church, that this was a church, this was a group of people who were converted. That is, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And so Paul gives this long thanksgiving. Starts in verse 3, or in verse 2, goes through the whole uh, end of chapter 1. Uh, his thanksgiving might even continue into chapter 2. But as we come to chapter 2, there's a, a little bit of a change in what's going on. In the first 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul reflects further on his time with them, but he does so by defending the nature of his ministry uh, among them. As you come to chapter 2, Paul tells a lot about himself here. As a matter of fact, uh, just to show you this in your Bible quickly, uh, for sake of time, just look in your Bible at verse 2. Notice all the times in these, these verses I'm going to read to you where Paul says, we did this and we did that. Look at verse 2. But, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi. Starting there for 10 times in a row, or 10 times throughout the next few verses, Paul will talk about what we did, what he and uh, the, the people who planted the church with him did when they were in Thessalonica. So look in the middle of that verse, keep reading in verse 2. As you know, number two, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Look down at verse four. But just as we have been approved by God, verse five, for we never came with words of flattery, verse six, nor did we seek glory. Go to verse seven, but we were gentle among you. Go to the middle of verse eight. We were ready to share with you. I'll go to verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. At the end of that verse, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Then one final one in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Paul takes a good bit of time in these first 12 verses to defend himself and those who planted the church. We did this, we did that, we did this. And so the question becomes, why? Why does Paul give all of this information about himself and the other church planters? Why does he have so much here to say? And, it, and I think it's because he's defending himself. I won't point them all out, but as we would read through and as we study the next, uh, this sermon and next sermon, uh, next Sunday morning, we'll see that Paul will uh, continually call different people to the witness stand to testify about the integrity of his actions. He'll say, for instance, look at verse 1, for you yourselves know something, brothers, about us. He'll call the Thessalonians continually to the witness stand, verse 5, so you remember, brothers, you are witnesses, he says later on. He, he's going to continually tell the Thessalonians, you know how we behaved ourselves among you. Not only is that true, but he also calls God himself to witness on three or four occasions in these verses. God himself can testify. He will witness to the integrity of our actions. It seems to me that Paul is defending his actions against critics who were opposing him. Perhaps some of the people who ran him out of the city after three weeks. 
came back and said, can you really trust Paul? He had greedy motives. He was trying to do things for his own glory. He's just like other hucksters or preachers who come into the area for their own glory. And so Paul, for whatever reason here, has much to say about his own ministry among the Thessalonians. I think it's to defend himself, as I just said. But, but it is to our advantage that he spends so much time here talking about the way he treated the Thessalonian believers. For by looking closely at these verses, we can learn some essential characteristics of discipling others. In other words, we'll learn how to disciple others by looking at the way Paul discipled the the Thessalonian believers. Several years ago, I was transitioning from Bible college to pastoral ministry. And I had a, a summer free there where I decided to minister to youth or teens uh, alongside three other young men. One of those men was a few years older than myself. His name is Will. And he was uh, the leader of the team. Although he was only slightly older, and I reminded him of that several times throughout the summer, he, had, he did have far more experience than I did in preaching and ministering to young people. So Will took it upon himself to disciple me over the course of that summer. But to be honest with you, it did not start out very well at all. Uh, I remember one of my first exchanges with him. I didn't really know him very well at all. He's a very aggressive personality. Maybe you've met someone like this before. But uh, so as, as he was beginning to train us to get teens interested in coming to these activities that we were having, they were high-energy youth activities, there was a certain way that he felt that we should invite teens to come. And it really involved learning this extremely fast jargon to invite other people. Okay, and so Will effortlessly worked his, his way through this, I'll call it a spiel, okay, it's, uh, this is my sarcastic self, this spiel. I mean, he just kind of did this quickly, and he worked us through it, and he did it twice, but the problem was I didn't even really hear what he was saying. He was saying it so quickly, I didn't even know what he was saying. And then Will turned to me, and he said, okay, Brent, it's your turn, in front of the other guys. I said, well, I'm just not comfortable doing that. I don't even know what you just said. I, I, you know, I, I don't speak quickly like that. I, I don't know. And he says, no, I want you to do it. And so... I tried, and I failed miserably, and, and, and it was embarrassing. And then Will turned to me, and he exhorted me, and he said, I think that you have pride, and that you need to pray. You need to pray. <laughs> you, we need to go to separate rooms, and you need to pray, and you need to confess it to the Lord. And at that point, honestly, I was thinking, oh, I know someone here needs to pray, and... <laughs> And it is not me. It is not me. But eventually, over the course of that summer, although we had a few other run-ins, eventually God brought us together. As the summer went along, I was able to observe Will's walk with God. It was deeper than anything I had seen in a young man my age. He would get up early each morning and spend time in the Word. I'd never seen a young man do that before. He would stop every day after lunch and go and pray to God. Sometimes, because of 
how tired he was during that time, he would put himself in an awkward situation like holding a book because he knew he'd fall asleep praying. Book hits the ground, he wakes up, starts praying again. He would intentionally turn most conversations with young people to discussions of how they viewed the Lord. And may I say men and women, God greatly used Will's fervency and devotional piety that summer to change me. The hours that I spent with him that summer significantly impacted me. Men and women, perhaps there is in you a longing, a longing inside to be an influence in this world for Christ. If there is a desire in you to be authentic and genuine rather than phony, my challenge is pay attention to these verses. Learn from Paul how he ministered to a group. He's there for three weeks. God plants a church and they grow spiritually. We can all learn from these these things. And so as I look at verses one through seven with you this morning, I'll go very quickly through them. I want to just point out two characteristics of discipling others from the Apostle Paul. First, we learn in verses one through five that uh, we, must, we must learn from Paul that we must do good things to disciple others. And he, he gives us exactly what these two good things are in these verses. First, in verses one and two, if we're gonna disciple like the apostle Paul, we must have boldness with the gospel. Look at verse one. It says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. To make a difference in the life of others spiritually, we must start with boldness. We must be bold people to disciple others, and especially we must have boldness with the gospel. Now we can go quickly through verses one and two, but the first matter of importance for interpreting them properly is to understand the words in your Bible that are translated in vain. In vain. You see that in verse 1? For yourselves know, brothers, they are coming to you. When we were with you, uh, uh, it was not in vain. The words in vain come from one word in the original, and it can mean one of two different things. It might speak of, number one, the results of Paul's ministry there in Thessalonica. And honestly, that's how most people take this, but this is the way I'm not going to take it. So many of the translations will translate this one word. They'll translate it Uh, indicating the results. Paul says, you know, I want you to just reflect upon that time I came to you. Uh, Our coming was not in vain. It was not without results, you could translate, or not without effects. In other words, what Paul's saying is, the time I spent with you was not empty. Something happened. A ripple occurred. God did something significant. And so many people take this away. Paul says that the Thessalonians can testify that God brought results in Paul's time with them. Uh, However, there's another way to talk about this, and I think it's better. I think Paul's describing not uh, the the results of his ministry, but the character of his ministry itself. This means uh, what I think it does, and Paul is saying that the Thessalonian believers can bear witness that his ministry to them was not empty of purpose, or I prefer to translate it this way, it was not lacking in sincerity instead of in vain. I think this is 
better. The greater context pushes me toward this understanding here. He's talking about the character of his ministry. The Thessalonians can testify that his ministry was not lacking in sincerity. It was, they, they know that it wasn't a scam. They know that Paul didn't have selfish motives or that he was insincere. But how, how would they know that about Paul? And what you do is you just keep reading your Bible. You look at verse 2. Down in verse 2, it says, uh, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God the much, in the midst of much conflict. They knew that Paul was genuine because he continued ministering to them even after already suffering and being shamefully treated in Philippi. Those phrases, of course, I think to understand that better, at least a portion of that, you could go back to Acts 16 in your Bible. And you could read about when Paul planted the church, not Thessalonica, but, but Philippi. When he's there, Paul suffers physical abuse. He's arrested illegally. He's beaten with rods. He's thrown into a dungeon prison with Silas. Remember, God uh, causes an earthquake and he could have left, but he didn't. He didn't. This all happens in Philippi. But he not only suffered physical abuse, he was treated shamefully in Philippi. The text says here in 1 Thessalonians 2, I think this refers to either public disgrace or illegal abuse that Paul faced. Remember, he was a Roman citizen, and he should have been tried as a Roman citizen, but he was beaten beforehand. He was treated shamefully. It might also be that Paul has something more specific in mind for when these words are used often in Greek literature, treated shamefully together. It's used of verbal abuse. Not just physical abuse or violation of his rights, uh, but verbal abuse. Sometimes when a sophist or a traveling preacher would come into a city, they would uh, suffer insults and mistreatments. I was reading this past week about one ancient orator. His name was Dio Chrysostom. And he describes what preaching was like in the first century in some of these Greco-Roman cities. Uh, he says, was I not to fear your noise, your laughter, your fury, your hissing, your mocking jokes, means by which you scare everyone and will always take advantage of everyone everywhere? Shamefully treated might be this sort of verbal abuse. Can you imagine sharing the gospel with people in Philippi while people are hissing at you? Paul says, although that is true, and although I also suffered much conflict in Thessalonica, persecution in Thessalonica itself, I mean, it was bad there too. Despite this severe treatment, Paul was, verse 2, he was bold in God to declare the gospel of God to them. This word bold in your Bible is a very important word. Very important word. It's, I think, one of the keys to verses 1 and 2. Here it speaks of Paul's courage or fearlessness. This word boldness was often used in a political way of the right of a citizen of Rome to make his thoughts known. Involving challenging the opinion of others, including rulers. That's boldness standing up in the political arena and making your thoughts known. Paul, though, does not insert himself. He inserts the gospel of God. Okay, and, and so he has this boldness, this confidence to do so. So 
the Thessalonians should know that Paul was genuine because he inserted the gospel of God in the midst of or in the middle of much opposition in Thessalonica and Philippi. See, for when, when you are genuine, when you're genuine, when you're authentic as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're bold with the gospel even when suffering and persecution comes. And men and women, it's that sort of person that God uses to make a difference with the gospel of God. Okay, so uh, four uh, different things we can learn today. Two things we can see that if we're going to, if we are going to disciple others like Paul that we need to have, we need to do good things. Okay, and what's the first good thing? We need to be bold with the gospel. We continue, though, into verses 3 through 5, and we'll go quickly through this. Secondly, we must have, the second good thing we must do is we must have divinely approved speech. Verses 3 through 5. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. I'm not going to take the time to work through this. I think all these verses are held together by the word appeal, our appeal to you, verse 3, and later on our words. These verses are about the sort of words and appeal that Paul made to the Thessalonian believers when he was with them for those three works, those three weeks. He did not use doctrinal error, he didn't use impurity, he didn't attempt to deceive them, he didn't flatter them just to tell them what they wanted to hear, butter them up, but instead he spoke to please God. Okay, these are the the right and good things that we must do. But then I want to look uh, with you with the time we have left at the the middle of verse 5 through verse 7, and I want to see that not only must we do good things, but we must also have the right motives as we disciple others. So uh, these motives I summarize in two ways. Number one, if we're going to disciple others like the Apostle Paul, we must be authentic. Look at the end of verse five. It says, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. To disciple others, we need to be authentic in our motives. This verse, at the end of this verse, speaks of Paul's motives. I want you to notice a little bit of a pattern starting here in verse 5. So you see the, for we never came with, look at the beginning of verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery. What Paul will do beginning here and into verse 6 is he will give a denial and then he'll give kind of a parenthetical response. So you look at the beginning of verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery. We didn't do that. That's the denial number one. And then a parenthesis. As you know, you can testify that we didn't use words of flattery. Then look at the middle of verse 5. Nor with a pretext of greed. Denial number two. We didn't come with greedy motives. Parenthetic response. God is witness. So you can bear witness to the first thing I'm denying. And God can bear witness to the second thing. And then look at verse 6. Denial number three, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And then that's the denial. And then it's parenthetic response, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
And so what I see in the middle of verse 5 here is Paul saying that uh, God can testify about the inward motive of his heart that, that, that lie behind the past visit that he made to them. His ministry to them was not motivated by greed. He didn't put a mask on greed and come in and just try to make a good impression with them. That's not how he was motivated. Sometimes these orators or traveling preachers would come in and they'd be greedy. They would want things. They would want support. They would want stuff. But not Paul. Paul was not into that. His motive was, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to... I'm going to speak of the right thing. I'm going, to, I'm going to introduce the gospel of God to you. And I'm going to speak with integrity. I'm not just going to butter you up. I'm not just going to say, I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to use error. And I'm going to come with the right motives. Not coming just so that you'll be impressed with the preacher, the speaker, and you give them stuff. That's not what I'm doing. And that leads us to verses 6 and 7, the second uh, right motive that we must have when discipling others is we must not have selfish ambition. That's how I take verses six and seven. I think there are three key expressions here as we, we, we work through verses six and seven to understand this passage here. The first one is seeking glory. When Paul says in verse 6 that he did not, we did not seek glory from people, the word glory can be used in both a religious and a secular way during this time. Uh, normally in the New Testament it would be the religious use, and it would speak of the glory or the splendor of God or of a divine being, glorious or splendor. But it also had a secular sense, which you could translate fame or recognition, honor or prestige, and I think that's how Paul is using it in this text. Okay, so Paul is saying that when he came to Thessalonica to minister among them, he and the other church planters, they were not seeking recognition or honor from any of them or other people as well. He didn't do this. Now the next phrase or two words I think that help you understand what's going on is in that parenthesis at the end of verse 6. So keep reading verse 6. He says, though we could have made demands... This, I think, Paul's attitude here is remarkable because he could, have, he could have made demands. He could have sought honor and recognition from them because the text says that he was an apostle of Christ. So as an apostle of Christ, he could have been a weight or a burden to, to them. But Paul, again, is not into this. He's not into celebrity treatment. If he was selfish, then he could have made Demands. He could have demanded free room and board from the Thessalonian believers, but that's not what he does. And then he closes all of this, I think, in, in the very first line of verse 7. This is an unfortunate um, verse division. I think verse 7, the first part, should be connected with what he just said when he says, but we were gentle among you. We didn't come in seeking honor from you. We didn't come in making demands of you, throwing our weight around but we were gentle among you. One of the most difficult things about verse seven, just to be honest with you, is that word gentle translated in your Bible, that there's a, a small variant in some Greek text here that uh, is really just a difference of one letter. And so the word could either be a word that you would translate gentle, 
Or some of your translations probably have infants. We're infants among you. And that actually is just a little bit stronger for uh, textual support for infants. Okay? And so um, this variant would read then, Paul says, we were infants among you. And uh, I think it should be connected to verse 6. Paul didn't bully the Thessalonians around when he was with them, making heavy demands, but he was like a little baby in their midst. Rather than acting like imposing apostles, he took the role of a small child with them. That's the sort of motivation and sort of approach that he had in discipling others. If you're going to influence others for Jesus Christ, we must avoid the sad irony of doing good things with the wrong motives. Good things with the wrong motives. And may God give us grace to learn from this text, learn how we could encourage other people to the gospel of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2. I thank you, Lord, for what it teaches us about Paul's methods in church planting. I thank you, Lord, that as followers of you, yours, that we are approved by you as well. As New Covenant followers of Jesus Christ, we're approved by you. And we uh, as well have responsibility to behave and function in ways like the Apostle Paul. I pray that we would desire to impact others for the cause of Jesus Christ. I pray that, that we would have a longing desire in our heart to be used by God to impact this world for your glory. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.